If you, if you believe that Jesus is Lord of all, how about if you say amen? amen? Turn in your Bible to Matthew 16, if you would. Uh, just a heads up, next week when you uh, come back, we're going to be jumping into the, the book of Hebrews. Um, we're going to be in um, Hebrews for I don't know how long, otherwise I would tell you. Um, we try at New Hope to do at least one book of the Bible in, in a year, and this year I'm going to try and do two. Um, we're going to try and do the book of Hebrews first, and it's 13 chapters, so I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take. It won't be 13 weeks, I can guarantee you that. Um, and then after that, we're going to do the book of Daniel. Looking forward to New Testament, Old Testament. It'll be, it'll be fun to do that. Uh, Blair, I'm hearing a little bit of a feedback in background, if you can pick that up. Thanks. If you um, have your Bibles open to Matthew 16, you're where I'm at. There's Bibles in the pew racks, and you're going to also see it up on the screen as well. This particular passage, I think you're going to find, um, if you have a Catholic background, um, or perhaps family members in, in your life or friends who have a Catholic background, this might be especially helpful to you as the, we look at Matthew 16 this morning, but clearly for all of us as well, as we understand what Jesus is calling the disciples to do. For understand where you're at right now, for about two and a half years, Jesus has been working with the disciples, trying to get them to a point where they recognize who he is. And he's been affirming, he's been teaching, reaffirming, reteaching, and now we find him in Matthew 16, a long ways away from Jerusalem. He's made a decision to leave the crowds behind and to leave the leaders of Israel behind, which is very confusing to the disciples. They're, they're seeing him as a conquering king, and so they're trying to understand why is he shunning the power. So he leaves Jerusalem behind, they go 120 miles to the north, I don't know how long it took them to walk there, but you know they didn't catch a bus, so they, they did a, a walking thing. They did a road trip. They walked to a region known as Caesarea Philippi. I'll explain that in just a minute. But in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus announces a surprise, something that the disciples didn't see coming. And in the midst of the surprise, he also has a question for them. It's like a final exam. It's just months before he's about to be executed, and he has just one question for them, and it's the same question that every one of us have to face. And without playing my hand too soon, you know the story. Jesus literally says to them, who am I to you? Who is Jesus to you? Not just the biographical person, not just the historical person, but who is Jesus to you? It's the biggest question you're ever going to be asked in your life. It's the biggest question the disciples had ever been asked, and it requires the most colossal response. So understand, the disciples come into this setting with some degree of disillusionment. They thought that Jesus was elevating himself to a position where he was going to overthrow Rome. People at this period of time were looking for a political leader, a Messiah who would change the landscape, who would throw Rome out, who would lead them as a people. And so they come into this period of time, instead of seeing a conquering king, he leaves the country. He leaves the seat of power Jerusalem is the capital city, but he leaves the leaders behind. The people of the city want to make him king. They want him to rule, but Jesus walks away. However, what we understand is what the disciples see on the surface is not the reality of what God's really up to. That's true in your life today. What you see on the surface is not the reality of what God's up to. And we'll see that woven through this passage this morning. Go with me to Matthew 16 and verse 13. It starts this way. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
I want you to understand a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. Um, this is a road trip to a place that good boys didn't normally go to, especially good Jewish boys. Think Las Vegas. Think of if you had a youth pastor in your church who would take the youth group on a weekend trip to Las Vegas. You'd, th- you'd begin to question that, wouldn't you? You say, first of all, where'd the budget money come from for that? And then you think, you begin question the values. Well, what's, what's going on there? Well, Jesus has taken good Jewish boys, the disciples, on a road trip to Caesarea Philippi, which is not a place that people who follow God typically hang out at. You kind of need like a spiritual shower after going there. Let me explain this to you. Caesarea Philippi was originally called Panaeus, and after the Greek god Pan. And so Panaeus was the most familiar name people had, but Caesar decided, Caesar Augustus, to give this region as a gift to Herod, Herod the Great. He was the king over the Middle East at that period of time, and he was in subjection to Caesar. So Herod receives this gift, and as a result of receiving the gift, he decides I'm going to build a temple there because this is like a vacation town. It's a place people like to come and hang out, the non-Jewish people, the pagans. And so he builds this white temple, and this temple is dedicated to Caesar Augustus so that people can go inside the temple and worship Caesar as God on earth, small g. Now, Herod dies, and when Herod dies, he wills this territory to his son Philip. And Philip really likes Caesar as well. So he decides to expand the city, and he decides to improve this white marble temple and rename it after Caesar, Caesarea. That's where the name comes from. But Philip also really likes himself, and so he decides to name it after himself as well. So that's where it comes from, Caesarea Philippi. It's named after these two leaders. Well, this is a place where pagans hang out. I'll explain that in just a moment. But what you have is the crossroads of pagan culture, Greek mythology, mixed with satanic worship. And in that setting, Jesus asked this question, who do the people say the Son of Man is? So God's taking a poll. He's taking a poll about himself. It is not that Jesus is unaware of what people are saying or what they're thinking. And Jesus is not concerned about public opinion. He's aware that there's people back in Jerusalem that think he's a pawn of Satan. The Jewish leaders actually accused him of being a puppet of Satan and doing the works of Satan. So he's very aware of what people are thinking, but here's what he's really doing. He wants the 12 to think about the perceptions of him because it's a setup to the bigger question, who do you think I am? So he uses this phrase, son of man. It's Jesus' favorite term of himself. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, you find him using it 80 times, referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, the Jews didn't like that title. It's a messianic title. It's a title that referred to the Messiah, and Jesus used it of himself, but here's why the Jews didn't like it, because it referred to the humanness of God, and they didn't want anything to do with the concept of God and humanness being mixed together, so the Jews would shun that title. They didn't like it when Jesus used it. Now, if anyone else had asked this question, who do men say that I am? Wouldn't you kind of think them to be arrogant? Try it tomorrow. Go to work. I'm serious. You know, go like on this, in the hallways at school and say, so, who do the people say that I am? You, you would kind of think it a little arrogant, right? In Jesus' case, it's not arrogance. He's, he's wanting the disciples to respond specifically because he knows what's going on. He knows what people are thinking. So in verse 14, we see their response. Verse 14 says this, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some say John. Now, that, that's kind of creepy because John's been beheaded, okay? So they're thinking he's like the undead. This guy who's been decapitated has come back and been reincarnated. Why do they do that? Well, some say John because they can't explain the miracles. They don't know. Even Herod himself said, I can't explain this guy. He's not human. It can't be possible. How could he do these things? Others say Elijah. Why? Because Jewish, Jewish belief, in, according to the Word of God, is that Elijah, the supreme prophet of the Old Testament, that God will send him back to planet Earth before the great and terrible day of the Lord, according to Malachi 4.5, that Elijah will reappear in the end times. Well, they perceived that Jesus was kind of like Elijah, the, the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who's announcing him. And then we're told others say Jeremiah. Well, here's some ancient history for you. Very common in the first century and before that period of time that the Jewish people believed that Jeremiah, at the time of the Babylonian assault against Jerusalem, when the Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant, that he took it from the temple and he hid it in a cave to protect it. That legend continues on today, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and put it away so the Babylonians couldn't capture it. And so they believed at this period of time that Jeremiah was going to come back and going to deliver the ark to them and restore God's power on earth. So why John? Why Jeremiah? Why Elijah? Well, the people see in Jesus the character of John the Baptist, the fiery teacher. And, and they see in him the passion of Jeremiah and the mystery. And with Elijah, they see the intensity. So they're, they're confusing him. Here's what all three identities say, though. All three of those identities say, you're not the Messiah. You're Messiah's forerunner. You're the one who's going to advance his arrival. All the answers say, he's a man, and that's all that he is. It's evident that even today people are captivated by Jesus. They, they think of the historical figure, and they try and get it in their mind around what he did and what he said and who he is. This next quote might even fascinate you comes from Napoleon Bonaparte. You might be surprised by what he had to say. Napoleon in 1815, I know men and Jesus was no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a mere man. I don't know what he did with that. I don't know if he made Jesus Lord and Savior of his life. But here's what's really clear. You cannot make a decision about Jesus by taking a poll. You take a poll about Jesus and you're going to get so many varied answers. Many people get their theology that way. They ask their aunt or their uncle or their grandmother or their, their friend at work, what do you think? And then they kind of attach themselves to that. Rather than determining themselves, here's what's important. Not what other people say, but what do you personally say? And so that's why Jesus ratchets it up, and he asks the question at the next level, a bigger exam for the disciples. Who do you say that I am? So before we get to that verse, the one that's coming next, I want to help you to understand Caesarea Philippi. I told you I would come back to it so that you understand the setting of where the disciples are at. The first image that you're going to see on the screen 
is what you would see today if you went there. It's a very popular destination for Holy Land tours. People, when they go to this region of Caesarea Philippi, what you're seeing in the foreground is a waterfall. It's a very lush area. In the background is a cave. It's a very large cave. It's a hole in the side of the earth, and it's quite deep. Now, this particular cave, at one time, before it was an archaeological site, had buildings built in front of it. Matter of fact, here's an image for you to see what the disciples saw when they went to Caesarea Philippi. So on the left-hand side of the screen, you see a white temple. I'm going to come back to that one in just a minute. In the center, you see a white temple. That's the one that was erected to Caesar Augustus, in which people came and worshipped God on earth, small g. A God that died nonetheless. What do you do with that? Okay, so then when you come over to the left-hand side of the screen, you see the other white temple. It was also made of marble. It was built in front of the cave that you just saw. That cave to this very day is known as the gates of hell. It was considered the door to the underworld. And in that particular temple is where individuals went to worship the Greek god Pan, and they would sacrifice animals, and they would take goats and destroy them, and then throw them back into the deepest part of the cave as an offering before their god, which was half man and half goat, the god Pan. The word panic, the god of fear, that's where it comes from. So you're standing in front of the gates of hell. You have people who are worshiping God on earth, Caesar, people who are worshiping the god of panic, people who are called up in Greek mythology and they're worshiping Satan. It's all intertwined. And there, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? More importantly, who do you say that I am? That's what it says in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, there's absolutely no substitute for your personal decision. It doesn't matter what the crowds say. Jesus wants to know, what do you say? Ultimately, you have to respond to that same question. You. So if we were standing there, I can just see Jesus doing this to the guys. He's got the 12 with him. Who do you say? Not the crowd. You. New Hope, 2014. Where do you land on this particular issue? Now, Peter, he can't stay silent. He answers for all of them. And Jesus doesn't ask Peter specifically, but he speaks up. So we see this in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's a God moment for you. There's not a stone God that he's referring to. This isn't the street talk the disciples have just spoken of. It's a very specific answer. In the midst of these shrines and these temples, Peter says, you're the living God. Now, I want you to understand what he's saying here. On behalf of all the others, Peter's speaking up, and he uses Greek language. He uses the word Christos. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. But instead of saying Mashiach, he says, you are the Christos. You are not the forerunner that everybody else thinks you are. You are actually him, Now, there had been other declarations of who Jesus is before this time. Just go back with me a little bit if you're familiar with your Bible. Nathaniel, 
Nathanael sees Jesus for the first time. Jesus tells him, Nathanael, before I ever met you, I saw you standing under the tree. I saw you talking with Philip. And as a result, Nathanael says, truly, you are the king of Israel. You are the living God. Before that, Andrew. Andrew said, we've discovered the Messiah. John the Baptist himself said, he is the Lamb of God. So how does Peter's account here differ from all the others? Well, first of all, it's not an emotional response. He hadn't just seen a miracle. He's he's stating a fact. This statement, something from a very sincere man. He's been taught by God. But understand it in the context. Like all the other Jewish people living in the first century, they have been taught to look for an earthly Messiah, a ruler, one who would change the landscape politically for them. And when Jesus refuses to use his miraculous power to throw Rome away, people begin to question, is he really the right one? Do we really have the right guy? Do you know that even John the Baptist questioned whether or not Jesus was the right one? It's very close to the point of his death. Let me show you this passage on the screen. But John is in prison, and he's about to be executed. And look at what he has to say, John, or Matthew 11.1. 1. When John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Why? Well, he's about to lose his head. When you're about to die for something, you want to know, do I have the right one? So that even John had that ebb and flow to him. The miracles are very, very clear evidence. But his refusal to use the miracles to bring himself power caused people to begin to question, even John. So at this stage, the 12 have fluctuated. They've gone from moments of great faith to moments where they really doubt let me show you one thing that they said, John 6, 69, just with really deep conviction. This is the disciples. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's pretty affirmative, isn't it? I mean, they're very confident in that statement. But if you look back just a few verses in Matthew 16 to verse 8, there's this remarkable lack of discernment. Look, look at this one. Jesus speaking to them. You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? See, they were hungry. And and Jesus was with them, and they'd already seen Jesus make bread out of nothing, and yet they have this little faith. And so Jesus is going after them again. But here we find, by the time you get to verse 16, finally, this truth is established in their minds beyond question. Now, they're still going to experience times of confusion, but no longer are they doubting who he is. God has etched it into their heart. But here's what I believe. I think in this phrase, Peter takes a step, one beyond everyone else, beyond Nathaniel, beyond Andrew, even to the degree that I believe he stepped beyond John the Baptist, because he hasn't just said, you're the Mashiach, the Christos. He said, you're the son of the living God. This comment is a reflection, an echo of what God the Father himself said. Peter responds to revelation that God has given to him. Let me show you what God the Father said about Jesus himself. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 3.17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter's echoing 
what he's heard God confirm in his heart. And so we understand that Jesus, in the midst of this vile display of all these earthly gods at the gates of hell, responds to Peter this way, God bless you, Peter, because you're seeing something that street talk didn't reveal to you, something that my Father showed you. Look with me at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood. That means he didn't arrive at this conclusion on his own, did he? He couldn't have. He couldn't make this conclusion on his own. This knowledge is not due to human cleverness. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is the Lord, the Son of the living God. God the Father revealed that to you. The Holy Spirit brought that into your life. God drew you to Himself. What my wife likes to call God wooing you. God is the one who reveals this information. So why does Jesus say He's blessed? Well, Peter didn't respond with, well, the historical records say, Jesus, that you're the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Or my information tells me that you were born to Mary in Bethlehem. See, it's not the name. The name is not important to him. What he's affirming is who the Messiah's person is and his program. In other words, it's more than just the name. Peter's recognizing there's something much, much bigger going on here. Truth. God pours out his resources upon you when you come after him in faith, asking him to reveal things to you. If you come to him through Jesus Christ and say, Father, I need to understand this better. I do this every week, church. I I open up my word every Monday and I begin studying for what's coming up on the weekend and I start out my Monday by saying, God, I don't know what you want to say to your church. But then there's things in your word that I frankly don't have eyesight to understand because I'm human. Give me spiritual insight. And God pours out supernatural resources, especially on Peter in this moment, because the Father reveals hidden things. Why? Because in your human capability, it's very difficult to understand the Word of God without the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Look with me up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. You ever had a conversation with a person who is not at the point where they're a follower of Jesus Christ yet and you try and explain the Bible to them? And they look at you as though you're speaking Greek. Well, in my case, sometimes I am. But You, you may as well be reading a jar of peanut butter to them because they look absolutely confused. That's that passage of Scripture. It's it's telling us they're spiritually appraised. It's the things that the Holy Spirit helps us to see. So in Peter's case, the Father had to reveal things and bring understanding, especially because at this point, there's a predisposition which is so strong in favor of an earthly king, a temporal king. No one could overcome it unless they're enabled by God Himself. Now here's a really crucial note. You might want to write this down in your Bible. It was not because of one more miracle that the disciples arrived at a point where they finally get it. It wasn't that case. They didn't need one more miracle. Those were not sufficient alone by themselves to convince people. There were thousands of people who saw Jesus raise people from the dead 
to restore eyesight, to restore limbs, to heal them of leprosy. And yet for those thousands, it didn't do it for them. I've talked to people throughout my life who have said to me, if Jesus would just show up and just do, you know, like, I don't know, part the ocean or something, then I'd believe. Really? Because according to the Bible, there's a whole lot of people that saw miracles and they just didn't believe. It didn't require one more miracle. It required the Spirit to open the eyes and draw them to the point where they could see him as the son of the living God. Here's the cool part. Jesus accepts the confession. Jesus accepts it. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you got it wrong. Man, I'm like the forerunner. I'm not the Messiah. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, blessed are you, Peter, for my Father has revealed this to you. So now he's about to announce his surprise because based on what they've just said, he's going to establish his kingdom in the future, but he's going to do something specific now. He's going to start a building program. Look with me at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You are Peter. Now this is the part where Protestants and Catholics differ. And I want to take just a minute to explain this to you because verse 18 is what in the Catholic Church they would say, this is where the Pope gets his power because they would say that Peter was the first Pope and everyone that descended from Peter, the future Popes, got their power right from this verse. So it'd be pretty important for us to understand why is there a difference between Catholics and Protestants on this particular position. First, I want you to understand that the word Peter is a Greek name. It's the word for rock. You'll see that in your notes on the right-hand side, but you'll see it up on the screen as well. Peter is Petros, and it means rock man. So what we see Jesus doing here is he's using a play on words. Peter, you are a rock, but upon this rock, I will build my church. So we we really need to understand that because Peter is Petros. It's the masculine form of a Greek word meaning a small stone, okay? Okay. more like a fragment of a much bigger stone. And the next word that Jesus uses on this rock, I will build my church, is the word Petra. So Petros and Petra. It's the same basic word, but Petra is referring to something much bigger. A mountain, a peak, a rocky mountain. Now, all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, how is God referred to? My rock and my fortress. So in the Jewish mind, God is the rock. So it'd be inappropriate for Jesus as God to say, Peter, you're the rock. He's saying, you're Petros, you're the fragment, you're a smaller rock. And he gave him that name because he was indeed a rock in the church. I'll show you how to understand that a little bit better in just a minute. But this, this Petra, this bigger rock on this rock I will build my church. What is he talking about? On this truth that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this statement, I will build my church. So Jesus isn't saying on you, Peter, but on this rock, this statement of truth. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Christ alone is the foundation and the only head of his church. That is the truth of Scripture. So any other interpretation than that 
well, would be in disagreement at least with me. You can, you can disagree with me if you want. Okay, so we've got Petros and Petra. Jesus is talking about this big rock, this rock of truth. Peter came to a point where he fully understood this. I want you to see a passage on the screen that will help you a little bit with this, especially if you have a Catholic background. First Peter 2.6 says this, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, that's, that's the bigger rock, and he who believes in him, who's the him, church? Jesus. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Who wrote that? Peter. Peter got it. As a matter of fact, if you back up one verse from there, 1 Peter 2.5, you see what Peter says is, you, new hope, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are the living Petros, the living stones. See, we're all talking rocks. We get to talk about God the Father and Christ the Son. We're the living stones of the church. Peter understood that. So based on that, Jesus moves forward in verse 18 and he says, I will build my church. So there's no doubt he uses this moment to declare he's about to do a new thing, something that totally surprises the disciples because they're looking for an earthly deliverer. They're thinking the kingdom is going to come on earth at that point in time. And Jesus uses this word ecclesia. I'm going to build my ecclesia. I will build it. Which means, first of all, it will be built. It will advance because it's God's promise and God can't lie. Can he new hope? God cannot lie. And so if God says, I will build my church, it's a future phrase, meaning it's going to happen. And it's going to continue to build. So we shouldn't be surprised here at New Hope if we started out with just a handful of people a little more than six years ago, and all of a sudden we find ourselves at more than 500 people. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church wherever people are dedicated to the kingdom of God and come to him through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church. So his church is always under construction. And I don't mean a building program. I mean that he's growing his church when we're dedicated to him. So he says, it's my church. I'm the architect. I'm the builder. I'm the owner. I'm the landlord. That's why, that's why when people in the world attack the people of God, they're really attacking God himself. When Saul was on the road to Damascus, when he was persecuting the church, God showed up and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus Christ, whom you persecute. Meaning, when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Because we belong to him. So he uses this word, ecclesia. Well, ecclesia is a very familiar term to the people at this period of time. Because it meant a gathering. When, when people would go to the town square, when they would show up for a town meeting, maybe they wanted to discuss the road building project or who's going to be mayor, they would be an ecclesia. It merely meant a gathering. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a gathering, a, a calling out a people, a distinct people. And they're, they're going to be the ones who will belong to me, so I will build my ecclesia. This phrase, gathering, this assembly, is referred to when you and I will stand in heaven one day. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that the great gathering will be an assembly. This is what it says, actually, Hebrews 12, 23, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, meaning that there's going to be this gathering of the redeemed of all the ages, one giant family reunion. 
And Jesus says, against that group, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's speaking of the invincibility of the church. So here's a truth for you. Hell cannot prevent the advance of the kingdom. It is not possible. And it cannot claim victory over you if you belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's the truth of Scripture. So let's understand what these gates are. Because Jesus used this phrase, gates. And gates won't be able to stand against it. Now, gates are not instruments of warfare, are they? Gates are meant for a specific purpose. And when you think in terms of a prison, gates are meant to keep those who are behind the gates locked in, right? Jesus is standing before the gates of hell. The imagery that people have in their mind at that point in time are these shrines and these temples and this power seat of Philip and these dead animals that have been sacrificed to Satan. The gates of hell is visible in front of them, and yet Jesus is talking about something so much bigger that Peter gets it, and he says, I get it. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, not the God of the dead stones. And in front of that, this declaration has been made, and Jesus says, death will have no power. Let me help you with that. Hell is perceived and understood in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to be the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, Sheol, the place where people would go when they would die, or Hades, Hades. And in the New Testament, it's referred to as Hades as well. That meant that people understood, especially the disciples, that when individuals would die, they would either go to bad Hades, the place of torment, or good Hades, Abraham's bosom, and they would be held there, the place of the dead. So Jesus uses this phrase, the gates of Hades will not prevail against what I am doing. It will not prevail against my church because death has no power to hold God's redeemed people. The gates of hell are not strong enough. Why? Because Jesus has conquered sin and death. That's the truth of Scripture. It's the great truth of the Bible. Acts 2.24, look at what Luke wrote for us. God raised Christ Jesus, Christ up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Wow. We could stop right there, and we will in just a moment. But that's the ultimate truth. So Peter's made this declaration. They're in front of the gates of hell, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God bless you, Peter, because you got it right. My Father revealed that to you. And I tell you the truth, on that rock that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build an invincible force which cannot be stopped, and the very gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So you and I, we serve a God who cannot be beat, and our God cannot lie. There is no other force which can accomplish this. What could explain the existence of the church still in 2014 were it not God's instrument on earth. I mean, look at what we did during the Crusades. In the medieval times, people corrupted the church and used it for the most egregious reasons, and yet it prevailed. Even though people tried to sidetrack it and take it in the wrong direction, God said, my church will prevail. What a significant place for God to reveal his strategy on earth. I mean, Jesus really believes in visible images for the disciples, doesn't he? He's willing to walk 120 miles to help them understand this. Well, here's the truth this morning. Jesus did storm the gates of hell. And Jesus did deliver the captives. And he is indeed the God of all gods. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. So the question this morning for you, the final exam, everybody has to answer it. Who is Jesus to you? You'll stand before him one day and you'll have to give an answer for that. You either name him on earth as your Savior and Lord, or Scripture says you will forcibly bow your knee before him one day, but then it will be too late. So your opportunity this morning is to recognize he's King of Kings, Lord of Lords, my Savior and my Redeemer. Maybe you've heard this your entire life and you've never responded to it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Jesus promises us in his word, he has separated your sins as far as the east are from the west, and he remembers them no more if you will but trust in him. That's all it requires of you, to name him as Lord and ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how I'm going to pray for you this morning. If you're at that point and you want to recognize Jesus as your Savior, you can do it right in the quietness of your seat. You can do it in this moment and ask him to come into your heart. But if you want to talk to me after the service, I'd be honored to do that. I'd be pleased. And and please don't hesitate to come up and talk to a pastor. I'm I'm really warm and fuzzy, okay? I, I want to encourage you, if you need to talk about this issue, don't be afraid to talk. So let me pray for you and and New Hope Church believers. I want you to pray along with me. Would you do that? Father, we recognize that you have revealed truth this morning. You have opened up our eyes and give us a capacity to see things that are only spiritually appraised. Your Holy Spirit has been present in this place and remains even right now at this moment. I feel your spirit brooding over this auditorium and God, I know that there's individuals who are struggling with this information. Perhaps they've pushed it away their entire life, but yet they've known you've been wooing them and calling them. Father, come alongside that individual in the way that only you can. You tell us that you're the God of mercy. Be merciful in this moment. Remind them that there's no sin that they've committed that's too great that would keep you from forgiving them. Father, even in the quietness of their seat, they can pray to you. Father, I pray also for my fellow believers here, for those who name the name of Jesus Christ, who know, Lord Jesus, that you are the Son of the living God, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I pray for our believers that we would not forget these truths that we've learned in these last two weeks, that we would share this information, Father, make us bold in 2014 that there is new life in Jesus Christ. We come before you in humbleness, but sincerity, asking for the presence of your power in our life. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.